Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode five of Two Pints of Maggots and a Packet of Hooks, the fishing podcast. Got a brilliant show lined up for you. The sun is currently shining. By the time you listen to this, it will be Easter. So the fish are having a good old munch and the restrictions are being lifted slowly but surely. Match fishing is allowed as well. So all is becoming much, much better with the world. And by listening to this show, hopefully it will be even brighter because in the big chair, having the big chat is legendary former world champion, Mr. Ian Heaps. And we had a brilliant chat about all things in the past, the present and in the future. Before we crack on, um, I need to announce our little competition winner. So on episode four, I put out a competition on social media and asked the question, which piece of kit um, was it that Nick Speed said he couldn't do without? And of course, the answer was a method feeder rod. Um, we were talking about the Shimano Aero range, if you remember. Um, I did a draw out the hat for those that entered, those that shared and liked the post, etc. And the winner was Lee Saggers, my old mucker from many, many moons ago. It's been too long, Lee. Uh, we'll catch up soon and have a little fish together, that's for sure. So winging its way to you in the post is some Teddy Fisher bait and a podcast cap. So I've got a fantastic show, I really promise you, with Ian. Um, but let's kick off and look at the press pack. Okay, let's get stuck into the press pack. Um, we've got lots of stuff to review and the weeklies but due to the timings on this episode we've got no monthly magazines to look at the news in there but lots and lots going on and to kick off with um quite a disturbing um report which came out mid-month of march so this was in the angling times on the 16th it was also across quite a lot of social media as well and the angling trust had to come out and do a big piece on this and it really really drives home that we should not rest on our laurels as anglers and be very very aware of the threat that is to angling in general, um, because this report has been created by the Conservative Animal Welfare Foundation. And even more disturbing is that this is a group that's backed by Carrie Simons, who is Boris Johnson's partner. And essentially what they've done is come up with what seems to be misinformation, fake news, if you want to call it that. And they have proposed and put this document into the government uh, I'll read you the, the, the quotes that we've got here. Um, the Anglin Trust has written to the Prime Minister attacking a biased and flawed report which effectively calls for a ban on all recreational fishing. Uh, some research suggests that catch and release activities are stressful for the fish and even when released back into the wild, survival rates are dramatically low. Some researchers suggest a survival rate of only 1-2%. to 2%. 
Angling Trust says such claims have been dismantled by leading fishery scientists and the Angling Trust CEO, Jamie Cook, said, it's disappointing that the authors of this report have chosen to cherry pick examples that fit their predetermined anti-fishing ideology rather than following the facts and science. Survival rates following catch and release are nothing like the figure quoted. He then says studies demonstrate average survival rates well over 90 up to 95% and even higher with coarse fish in the UK. The report also calls for fish to be added to the Animal Welfare Act of 2006, which could then theoretically end angling and even keeping the likes of pet koi. So for me, that is something that, you know, these anti-angling mob have gone nowhere, ill-educated, ill-informed, some sort of agenda, which we know we don't understand. So let's not rest on our laurels. Let's support the trust and, and everything that we can do from our side of things to uh, to continue enjoying doing what we do. So that's the first thing that caught my eye in the middle of the month. Uh, around that time as well, in the same um, uh, same magazine, so the 16th, I, I, the pages are full, of course, of, of big fish catches and various things. And I, I try to look for things that are slightly different. There's loads of great big barbel and pike this time of year and, and big perch are, are, are a real feature of the magazine loads of big chub but this one caught my eye on the 16th it was by a chap called uh, vince cater and it's a record river dace now just imagine this i've caught thousands of dace in my time but never really anything above sort of four or five ounce to be fair this chap has broken the river record with uh, a one pound three ounce specimen uh, trotting maggots so fair play to, to vince that's a lovely fish and just something a little bit different from the other fish that uh, are all over the pages. Um, in that magazine as well, there was an interesting article um, by Dr. Paul Garner. He is obviously a, a fish specialist. He has a, an article in the Angling Times every week. Um, and this was about tackling big roach on still waters. And he talks about um, using a fish meal dark ground bait mix um, in a feeder. Now, I've always read understood experienced fish meal ground bait never really working for roach um something like a salty mix in the in the winter has always worked quite well um but a fish meal has never really you know come across that cereal based active you know high oil emp things like that absolutely but fish meal not for me but he does explain and it does make sense of course these big roach that he's targeting uh, tend to be from Carp waters, you know, syndicate lakes, uh, big open natural venues where there's a lot of carp fishing that takes place. So it goes without saying that they're going to be eating a lot of boilies, a lot of, you know, fish meal products, if you like. So, of course, they will they will switch on to it. So maybe I'm just getting the, the lines are a little bit blurred between my natural water fishing uh, and non-fish meal baits and of course these these specimen type waters so interesting food for thought uh, i've got a, a, a venue down here called woodland waters there's a big specimen lake there 27 acres uh where the roach i believe runs to sort of three pound and if you land on a shoal of them you have a cracking day but it's you know you got to prepare for a blank as well it's one of those and of course that's that's targeted heavily by carp anglers so food for thought Moving on then to uh, a week later, 24th of, of March in, in the Times, uh, a couple of things that caught my eye. There's a drive to raise £30,000 for a new TV programme, and it states that it's going to be a sort of Blue Planet style film 
Um, it's almost like a, cra- a clever crowdfunding, I guess, um, about the UK's native fish species. Now, to raise this £30,000, what they're doing is um, an auction. Uh, lots and lots of different auctions. I've actually got it open just here uh, on my PC. Um, I've put a bid in myself. I won't tell you which one for. But there's various days out. It's um, it's driven by the chaps from, remember, the old passion for angling. So I give the website. It's www.jumblebee. So jumblebee.co.uk. And then forward slash passion for angling revisited day one. So it's quite a long URL. Uh, but I'm sure if you Google that passion for angling revisited day one, there's lots and lots of auctions on there to raise this 30 grand. They're up to about £7,000 um, at the minute. So you can win a day out with Chris Yates and Hugh Miles. You can win a day out with um, a couple of real sort of specimen anglers, targeting specific fish, big rudd, things like this. So it's quite a nice concept to raise money. And I, I hope they achieve the, the £30,000 because the, um, the idea of this new television programme looks quite interesting. Okay, moving on to um, the fish catches of the 24th of march in the times again the pages are splashed with big chub great big carp zander all sorts but the one that caught my eye is this elderly chap he says it's my best fish in 65 years of angling i'm not surprised it's an old boy called mickey donahoe uh, and he's fishing the river frome in dorset um and he has landed a three pound 10 ounce roach I mean, that is a, a fish of dreams. It really is. Um, he says, here, I'd been working in Wareham and after I finished, I was uh, enjoying a couple of hours fishing the feeder, using double maggot on the hook and connected with this remarkable fish. Spent a lot of time in this venue since moving to Dorset. All of my efforts paid off is what is definitely my best fish in 65 years. It's my new personal best by three quarters of a pound. Crikey, fish of a lifetime for sure. And I, and I guess with this week's uh, 24th, magazine why there's so many fish in there and lots of big specimens is of course it was the end of the river season and um you know everything seems to just go sort of nuts before we we close down for for the break till till june now whether the the whys and wherewithals the rights and wrongs of that i don't really have an opinion i, I fish rivers you know i've started getting back into them recently does it bother me the fact that they're shut for three months not particularly because i've got lots of other venues to go at if all fishing was to shut down for three months like it used to be back in the day i'd probably be a little bit cheesed off but um no if, if you know if the science says that, that those venues need a rest then then so be it from me Okay, the final thing that caught my eye in the 24th edition of the Times was towards the back in the match fishing section. And I've got to give the Angling Times their due uh, because normally they would be getting match results to fill that whole section towards the back. And because they've not had that, they've come up with this concept of the big question, if you like. And um, to come up with a subject weekly and get the expert views has been really interesting to see actually and this one really caught my eye because it says is the south losing out and what it's talking about is um, essentially big money qualifiers uh, to the likes of Fishermania, to the likes of uh, golden reel etc riverfest and when it asked the various opinions of the experts, it was Darren Cox's response that that's really stood out for me. And I, I never really thought about the South. When I think about the South of England and fishing, I, I think of the good old days, I guess, you know, your Dioa Dawkins, Willow Park, uh, Gold Valley. 
I know a few chaps that I used to fish with on festivals down at Dockhall Pools. Those lads are all Essex boys and they've got a, a, a you know a good little scene going on down there, puddled up farm, places like that. Um, but in general, I, I do think, you know, it's, it's it's not a huge scene, but it's there. But actually what these guys are saying, Lee Kerry, who obviously organises a lot of big matches for the feeder masters, says they're just... There's not enough anglers to fill 60 pegs down there, simple as. But it was Darren Cox, and, and, and I'll quote what he says. There's a natural match fishing bias towards the Midlands and North because the South is specimen carp territory. I can see this by how much match tackle Garbolino sells, but also by going to the big one shows. Farnborough in Hampshire has always been carp dominated, whereas at Stoneley in the Midlands is all about match fishing. And I never really thought of it like that because... You know, there used to be a huge scene down there, the London Canals, you know, Thames Fest, all the rest of it. So it's there, but it's just spread out and, and not to the volume of the Midlands and the uh, and the North. So, yeah, I thought that was a good question to, to pose. And, and I think Darren Cox's response um, on that uh, was, was quite interesting. And while we talk about Darren Cox, I can reveal now that he will be our next guest on episode six of our podcast. So uh, that will be the final one in this series. It's time to take a little break after episode six uh, and we'll resume again a few weeks later as we start heading out of spring into summer. So just wrapping up the press pack with the latest news in the last edition of, of Angling Times. So that was the 30th of March. Big, big standout, couple of pages in. Fishermania events selling out within 36 hours. Now, I spent a couple of years, um, probably about eight or nine years ago, going around fishing a fair few fishermania qualifiers and chasing the dream if you like just to sort of experience it savor the atmosphere and for me um there was there was quite a few negatives in some respects but what i was finding was um i turned up at a few places i remember going to a place called boldings in shropshire uh, and i was pegged on some stock pond with i think it had five or six pegs and it's never used in matches um situations where um, you'd end up, I went to one on the Oaks up in Yorkshire um, and there was seven or eight, nine pegs all empty um, and the end peg, you know, the guy with all the space obviously qualifies and, and it was just, just the way that those sort of pegging worked out. So I, I got frustrated in the end and, and it just wasn't worth my while. So I, I haven't fished anything like that for a couple of years. The last one I had a go at Partridge about four or five years ago, um, just for a bit of a novel really, but um, I get it. I get. I understand why now these are selling out straight away. It's a first come, first serve basis now, which we've not done for a few years. So that's an element of it, I imagine. But also, it's going to be pent up demand. It's like anything. Um, people have been sat around. They've not been able to fish matches. There's a high chance that you know people won't be going on holiday again this year. Um, so people are going to going to find these things to get stuck into. So why not? I think it's great. Um, I'm a little bit dubious about the, the fishing super league, the hundred hundred grand one. Um, I'm not convinced um, that that will pan out as it's been been sort of advertised. But that'll be interesting to see. Uh, but I have actually myself, even myself, I've, I've bought a Riverfest ticket um, for July, and I never thought I'd get involved again. But yeah, why not? Just just to sort of go along, sample it. Um, three sections of twenty. You just got to win your section, twenty peg section, and you're into to the to the final. So I'll give that a crack uh, this year. So yeah, I think it's it's good. 
you know, a good buoyant match fishing scene. It leads me back to what we just said about the Southern scene. Not many qualifiers down there, which I find fascinating. It's just maybe it is big fish territory down there. I don't know. I'd be uh, be really interested in your thoughts on that too. Now, big fish wise in the latest edition of Angling Times, um, again, the usual stuff, big chub, big barbel, the remnants of the last week of, um, of river fishing, big carp, big pike, all sorts of stuff. But the one that caught my eye, James Lafferty, a hundred pound of tench, averaging around seven pound a piece from a Cheshire Mere. Now the name isn't um, name checked, but being from the Northwest um, and fishing a few mares uh, as I was growing up, it conjures up these wonderful images. Tench are my favourite fish anyway. That's pretty well sort of said um, on many occasions. Um, but it conjures up images of, you know, sort of steam rising off these beautiful estate lakes and, you know, the sun coming up, lily pads, just watching a float sink under. And I don't think this chap fished that way. I think he's fished a feeder, but um, it just brings out, you know, glorious memories and the colors of the of the tench this time of the year are always interesting as well you know when the water's clear they've got that really dark color and then as the the venue start coloring up they come that more olive green and just a wonderful wonderful fish and just something different again in the magazine uh, and the last thing that caught my eye let me sort of find this page because i want to quote it exactly um going back to the big question which we spoke about uh, earlier in the match section of Angling Time. So the question this time is really generic. They're asking dead ship. They're asking a couple of, of, of the big lads, um, what is the best advice you've been given? And the one that stood out for me, um, in terms of match fishing, of course, this question in that context, is from Tommy Pickering, our special guest on episode two. And he says, wait a second before you strike. Now, I'm sure he doesn't mean that 12 months of the year, if you like, because we know there's going to be certain venues, little dink, you've got to hit it and whatnot. But I see what he's saying. So that's why I want to quote it spot on. He says, my old mate, Den my old mate, Dennis White, put me right back when I was in my 20s with regard to slowing my fishing down. I was always in a rush, thinking too fast and trying to catch too quickly. He sat me down and told me, Tom, when you get a bite, make sure it's on. By that, he meant that if you struck too early, you were wasting time winding in and casting again and weren't actually being fast at all. But just by waiting that second longer when the float went under or the tip went round and saying in your head, that's on, it did mean you caught more fish. I still do that to this day and always have. You lose nothing by waiting that second or two more. Be patient and slow down. So I totally get that as well. You know, I, I've been guilty before rushing around and actually it's totally counterproductive. I think it was, you think of a speed race, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a speed race and uh, the likes of Benny's at Lindholm a few years ago, I always remember matches on there and it was, you know, I'm in a speed race and actually, you know, uh, less speed, more haste sort of thing is, is the way forward. And, I get what he's saying there. So that's that's an interesting one as well. So not lots to go on in terms of um, the monthly mags. As I say, we've, we, we, we've, the timing's not quite right for that, uh, but lots and lots to read. And, and those were the, the standout picks um, in the press pack. Teddy Fisher Baits specialise in the manufacture of fishing ground bait and additives. We combine a 40-year-old proven fish catching recipe and the experience of our skilled team. Fishing is an adventure and here at Teddy Fisher 
we strive to make that adventure a success. Go to www.teddyfisher.co.uk to see our full range of baits. Hi and welcome to The Big Chat. For my next guest on this episode, there's simply not enough superlatives to introduce him. He won the Freshwater World Championships on his debut in Poland in 1975, breaking the World Championship record at the time. He's a 1985 European champion, which he won in Portugal. He was part of the 1985 England team that won the World Championship on Italian soil, which then led to a golden era of match fishing for England. And finally, he must have taught thousands and thousands of people on his legendary road shows and at his school of angling. It's Mr. Ian Heaps. How are you, sir? I'm absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Good man. That's great to hear. Great to hear, especially yeah. in these crazy times as well. Make, so. you make, you're making me sound like a god. <laughs> well, some might say that you are. Some might say you are. Now, listen, Ian, uh, to this... Um, this podcast i know you've done tons and tons of these things in the past so i do have a bit of a theme um it's sort of a past a present and a future theme if you like where Uh we touch upon different things and what i'll try and do is i mean if any of the listeners they only have to pop your name into google and they'll come up with all sorts of interviews you've done over the years so what we'll try and do is build on them rather than replicate them if that makes sense okie dokie now Believe it or not, I know you've met millions of people over your time, but we have crossed paths once or twice. Um, I can tell you the first time, very, very specific, 1994, um, I went to one of your road shows in a little town between Oldham and Rochdale called Shaw. You were I remember tiny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're a little tiny working men's club up the stairs, and I always remember that. I want to set your slider floats and cherish them until I moved out. And I've no idea where they are anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The second time is a really, really interesting one. Um, In 1995, I won a day out with our mutual friend, Mr. Keith Arthur, on tight lines. And when I went and did the filming and all the rest of it, the the day that that show got aired on tight lines, you was the special guest in the studio with Keith that day that that show was aired. And it was always quite funny because when Keith was saying, oh, it was a really tough day, um, it was gin clear, uh, there was, wasn't a ripple, your reply quick as a flash, you went, not a prayer, and uh, yeah, you were right, it was, absolutely, it was an absolute nightmare of a day, but, so yes, um, I, I, you know, uh, so been, I've, I've crossed. They have, in, in, in a weird roundabout way, so I chatted to the, to the guys um, on this podcast, the, the, the previous guests, uh, the episode one was Keith Arthur, and he described you. I said, what, what would you say about Ian as, a, as I'm going to chat to him? And he, he described you as a natural-born angler and a great communicator. Um, my second guest was Tom Pickering. I asked him the same question, and he said, a natural entertainer, and it's thanks to you that taught him an awful lot about talking to people on the bank, coaching, and also presenting. So yeah. they had great words to say about you as well. But looking back to your past, uh, Ian, your your father had a big influence in your fishing, didn't he? What what could you remember Absolutely. from him? Absolutely. Yeah. What were his key lessons? Well, I think I started somewhere around the age of five. And we used to go up up, up onto the canal, the Peak Forest Canal at Romley. Yes. Or Marple, Marple Bridge. And I used to sit between his legs on his wicker basket with one hand on his bamboo rod. Bamboo, yeah. 
about quite long, about 12, 13 foot. In those days, it was long. Yeah. And we would catch something like 40 or 50 little roach in a session on bread. A mm. uh, little ball of ground bait every cast. And I'd have one hand on this rod and go home and brag to my mother that I'd caught 40 or 50 fish. <laughs> you know, at least I'd been there. And that was my first steps into fishing. Yeah. Second steps, <laughs> this, is, this is funny. We went to a little pond and he caught some crucians. Um, tiny little three-inch crucians, and we brought about a dozen of these crucians home. And he was a keen gardener as well as a fisherman, my father. Yeah. And the greenhouse, he used to have two 40-gallon uh, drums to catch the water off the gutters. Ah, which water to use, yeah. Yeah, he used to use to water the tomatoes and that. Of course, these crucians went into the water butt. <laughs> well, he'd gone fishing a match this Sunday morning. And I raided what little bit of fishy toffee he got left there, and I found some hooks, and I found a little float, and I got a garden cane and some line. I had to build some house bricks up to get, gain access to look into the into the water butt, this 40-gallon drum. With a little bit of bread on the hook, I proceeded to catch these crucians. I caught 22. There was only 12 <laughs> in them. <laughs> so Exaggeration. I reckon I was a fisherman from the word go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Exaggerating like we all do, for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You're, you are a, you're a northerner like me, Stockpuller. I'm from Manchester. You're a Stockpuller. I know Romley. I know that. Roman Lakes is where I learned to that's fish. That's yeah. Marple. Um, yeah. How did it sort of move from there, then, from your dad taking you down to the canal, bread punch, all the rest of it, into, into match fishing? It's quite a big well, step, Well, that's, that's how I was taught on the bread, like I just said. And uh, it's a great, great building key, if you like, bread fishing. Precise depth, just fishing half an inch off the bottom. Little ball of ground bait, every cast. Mm -hmm. Just half an inch off the bottom. He used to say, imagine a fish sat with his belly on the bottom. Right. Then his mouth is half an inch off the bottom. Put the bait in its mouth, the little tiny bit of toe on the canal. Yeah, little bit of bread, little tiny ball of bread feed, about as big as your thumbnail. Just throw one of them every cast. Put the float with your baited hook right in that cloud, and the float used to just disappear under just lips, and you had a, a roach every chuck. It was fantastic. fantastic fishing. And in his words, he used to say, "You know, where we live here in the northwest of England, it's probably the hardest fishing." Mm -hmm. the you'll ever, ever come across. Because of pollution, because of the weather. The further south you went, the less pollution mm -hmm. and the warmer the weather. And it made it so much better fishing the further south you went. Yeah. He used to say, learn to fish here in the northwest and you can go anywhere in the world. Never mind in the south. You can go anywhere in the world and catch fish. And when you look at it, from the northwest of England, and I'm talking... Lee and Kevin Ashes and myself and Tommy Pickering and, you know, it's a nucleus of, of top quality fishermen. And I'm pretty sure the hard training in their youth uh, has really stood all those guys in good stead worldwide. 
Yeah, I would agree. My uncle used to say to me, and, and my uncle actually has fished a few times against you over the years, back in the day, and, and he used to say to me exactly the same. So if you can catch a fish on the Rochdale Canal, so you can catch in this, <laughs> you'll catch anywhere. And uh, I think mm-hmm. he's it's pretty much right. And yeah, spot on. And So where was your first match? And that would have been up north as well, I guess. It was on the canal as a junior. It was on the canal, yeah. If you remember the County Palatine... The, the County Palatine ran. That was the association, the County Palatine Anglers Association. Mm. They used to be in charge of all the canals. And not only did they do a senior match, they also used to do a junior match. Right. And that was the first match I ever fished. And uh, I finished seventh. And the lad who won it was called Ian Alcock. Mm-hmm. I ended up teaming up with him, oh, many years later. <laughs> uh, but we made a formidable, formidable team representing Abbey Hay Working Men's Club. And the team was Tony Knight, Tony Bielderman, Ian Alcock, and myself. I said, I first met Ian Alcock on that first junior County Town Championship on the canal, of which he won. I think he had 13 and a half ounces, and I think I have seven ounces. But uh, but that was it. I was only two hours. The only matches were only two hours in them days. Wow! That was a, that was the start. Yeah, now fantastic. But now you're well known as well for um, for fishing the Trent. Many many sort of years or over over the years. I think you made a quote actually on something I was watching a while ago that you probably could <laughs> could talk about most pegs from sort of Nottingham right the way up to the tidal area. You you fished it that often. Uh, when was the last time you got up to the Trent? Do you remember? A long time ago, I Is would it? think. Yeah, well, I've been in Wales now for, what, 27 years? Yeah. Um, and it was before then, when I last went to the trip. But in the 60s, then we was never away from there. Used to no. be there every Saturday, every Sunday. And if I'd yeah. won money, and often did, on a Saturday or Sunday, then I'd wag a day off work on Wednesday, go <laughs> fish the Wednesday open on the, on the Wednesday, yeah. Were you as part of this uh, this Northwest core, I guess? All the lads from sort of round our way were were going down and taking on the Knox lads. And of course the Yorkshire lads as well coming down. Was, would you describe that as a bit of a golden era of, of, of river fishing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. See, the, the, the Trent used to run warm right through the winter. It would be steaming. Mm. You never had cold feet. You could stick your welly, welly clad feet in the river and be as warm as toast. And because it was such a warm river, uh, it was absolutely solid with roach. There wasn't many other things. There was roach, there was good gene, there was a few bleak, a few dace. There wasn't the chub and the barbel and the bream that there are, that there are today. Mm. But the river was solid with roach. And um, this is all from the power station, was it, the heat? Yeah, and then they passed a law that they had to return the water from the power stations at the same temperature as they drew it from. So that meant the river run cold. But in a period from like early 60s to, oh, I suppose, 10 years, early 70s, the, the river did run warm. And it was a fantastic roach fishing venue. Mm. Um, there was roach on every peg. And you could often win with as little as eight pounds, but often you needed 20 pounds yeah. uh, to win, which... It was such a good day's fishing. You were fishing for bites, and the better you did it, the more bites you got, and the more matches you won. Of course. But, you know, if, if it was a match on a, something like the Welland or the Wither, which was a bream venue, 
it was common to get a thousand people participating in a match because whilst there was a lot of skill involved in on those bream venues, the look of the draw played such an important part. Yeah. Whereas on the Trent, which was an out-and-out roach venue, a decent-sized match, like an open match, would be 100 pegs. And mm. every one of those 100 anglers knew they were in with a chance of winning. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. Of course. So it used yeah. to attract uh, the better quality anglers are the ones that used to uh, participate on matches on the trend, you know, roach fishing. Well, tell me about this. Um, you're, you've been well known for being very innovative in terms of tactics, rigs, all the rest Methods, of it. Yeah. Methods, absolutely. And it, there's, a, there's a really, when I think about it, it seems, I need it explaining to me. I'm one of these where I can visualize it, but I, I need it explaining. You come up with this rig, which was basically a halfway house from a shirt button style stick float to a, what I'd describe as a, as a tapered rig. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what about. I'm talking about? Can you I explain that I to the listeners? I know exactly what you're talking about. Right, well, this came about, there was a match organised. I was just breaking into the fold of becoming a well-known, recognised Trent Angler. I'd be yeah. about 17 years of age, something like that. And... The top lads was the Benny Ashes and Kevin Ashes of the world and Dick Clay, uh, not Dick Clay, Dick, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm turning the clock back now. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I struggle oh, now. I don't know. Ken Booth, Ken Booth and Alan Mayers and a whole yeah. string of them. Anyway, there was a match organised between the uh, 12 Manchester Anglers and 12 Nottingham Anglers. But I thought, I'm going to go and watch this. And really, it was, supposed to be, it was supposed to be a match of the reels where all the Nottingham Anglers were, were using centre pins. Yeah, yeah. Where all the Manchester Anglers were using Mitchell matches, all using fixed spool reels. Yes. But it wasn't a match of the reels. Basically, it was a match of the base. The Nottingham lads were using maggots. Yes. And all the Manchester lads were using casters because yeah, they knew... Yeah. They knew that the caster caught that bigger stump roach. On the maggie, you catch two, three, four, five ounce fish. On the caster, you catch your four to ten ounce fish. You know what I mean? Proper thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I went down to watch it. Benny Ashes actually won the match, and I watched Benny for, oh, a good half hour. And he was fishing it just like I fished. Strung out, little shirt button, little tiny number eight shot, strung out sort of every six inches down the line. Yeah. Finished off with a number 10 and then the hook. And they were just feeding six casters and dropping this rig on top and just guiding it down the swim. They'd all it back, try to lift the caster off the deck just an inch, let it go again and down the floor to clunk. I watched <laughs> Benny and I thought, I can do that. In fact, I could do that as good as him. In fact, I could do that, I think, a little bit quicker than what he's doing. He's taking too long getting the fish out, things like that. Anyway, that was that method. That's how the Manchester lads fit. But as I watched the Nottingham lads, there was one Nottingham lad who was who stood out. Um, just can't think of his name at the minute. But he fixed a bolsa float. Mm. He had a bulk shot. In fact, it was a drilled bullet. Remember the little round bullets? Yeah. He fixed a drilled bullet. He was fishing in about eight foot of water. So same effect as an Olivet, basically. Yeah, yes, absolutely. 
but it was a big, big weight, really, a drilled bullet, like a quarter-inch drilled bullet. And they had that about three foot from the hook, and then a number four about 15 inches from the hook, and that was it. Mm. And he just chucked this rig in every time, and a ball of ground bait with maggots, a maggot mm. on the hook, and I reckon he caught more fish than anybody else in that match. And he was just holding that float back and just easing it over the ground-baited area, and it would mm. go under every single cast. And I came home from that match. I think he finished fourth on the day because he, his fish were much smaller, a lot of good gene, a lot of small roach. And I thought to myself, if you could sort of tie the two methods together, yeah, right, this bulk shot and this strung-out shot, and in the car going home, I often used to have a little, little, a little sleep. I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get warm in that car on them winters, winters evenings travelling home. And yeah. uh, I'd be terrible company because I just couldn't stop closing my eyes. Having a kiss. And I, dr- and I dreamt, yeah, and I dreamt up this method. And uh, about a fortnight later, I was supposed to be fishing a match on the canal. And the lad who had travelled with, he said, the match is cancelled, it's frozen. There's a match at Newark, on the dike, Newark Dyke, mm-hmm. the Trent. He said, shall we go there? I said, yeah, why not? I thought, I'll try this method that I've dreamt up. And uh, we got the last two tickets. Anyway, because a long story short, I won the match with 13 pounds, 15 and a half ounces. Yeah. And guess who was on this method? And in second place was Benny Ashes with ah. thirteen pounds seven ounces. I thought, <laughs> yes, I've got it, and, from, and that was the start of my successes on the Trent. It's a lovely, lovely shotty pattern. I used to a five number four stick float, mm-hmm. uh, which takes about fifteen number eights. Yeah, um, equals a five number four stick float. Well, I used to have a bulk of three number eights at about a third the depth. Mm-hmm. And equally spaced going up to the float, I'd go from three number eights to two number eights to a single number eight, single number eight, single number eight, single number eight, right up to the float. Below the bulk, I'd go from three number eights to two number eights yep. to one number eight to a number ten. Mm-hmm. And each one of those spacings was shorter as it went towards the hook. For example, five inches from the hook to the number 10, five and a half inches from the number 10 to the first number eight, six inches from that number eight to the two number eights, and seven inches from the two number eights to the three number Mm -hmm. eights, and then equal spaces right up to the float. And it's a beautiful rig and method fish. You know, you can even cast it like a waggle. You can cast it overhead. Yeah. And just fed it onto water. It never tangles. Um, it's won me an awful lot of matches on the trend. It was, yeah, it was a revelation for me. Well, I have to have a go because, like yourself, um, I moved from the northwest and, and I live in Lincolnshire now and I'm equidistant to two venues that you've just name-checked. I've got the Witham 20 minutes to my right and I've got Newark 20 minutes to my left. So the next time I go on on the Trent, um, I will be giving that a little bash, and I'll be replacing my maggots with castors. With the caster. (laughs) Did nobody feed feed Emp with the caster back then? Yeah, they did, yeah, yeah. 
We never did, but some did. Some, some used to... If you got the fish mixed up between taking hemp and taking castor, then what bait are you going to use on the hook? We used to just feed the castor and fish the castor on the hook. Yeah. Made it simple. And uh, if you're going to go and fish hemp, then you'd fish hemp and feed... Uh, you'd feed hemp and fish tares on the hook. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you either went to fish a trend with hemp and tares or castor. And my choice was Castor, and it's, you know, he's never let me down. No, I, I like it. I'll the be, uh, I'll the be trend changed, however. You know, I said to once they said they have to put the water back at the same temperature as they drew it, mm. it went downhill, and they tried to clean the trend up, and they did. And from it being a dirty, mucky river where the fish were happy to live in the warm water right under your rod end, mm. all of a sudden it was running cold. And clear, yeah. And the fish, the fish just moved from off under your rod end, and you had to go distance. And then the waggler, and that's when Dave Thomas, former world champion Dave Thomas, came into yeah. his own yeah. with the wagon mag, yeah. And the bronze maggot, a gallon of maggots, poached him down the middle of the river and chucking a waggler there, and it changed the trend <coughs> completely. It changed, not the trend that I used to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know it's a different beast, like you say, with all the barbel and all the rest of it. But I think a lot oh, of it completely is... Completely different river now. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. I think a lot of it's because some of the tactics that, you know, are, are neglected. I mean, I think if people like Wayne Swinscoe and all that that still fish, you know, on the track, they, they can they can pick and choose when they want to go for rope. I can, remember, sure Wayne Swinscoe, I can remember Wayne Swinscoe as a youngster. Yeah. Uh, Frank Barlow used to bring him along. He wasn't fishing the match, he'd just come to view... Yeah, let's have a watch. Uh, he often used to sit behind me, Wayne did, yeah, as a youngster. Well, he, he can pick and choose, and if he wants to catch roach, he'll catch roach. If he wants to go for barbel, you know, those lads that know the river inside out, they're still there. It's just knowing where Absolutely. to go, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'll tell you, uh, let's move a little bit then on to, to, to international fishing. You've just name-checked Benny a couple of times and Kevin Ashurst, because mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. I asked uh, Tom on his podcast i said who is the best uh angler you fish for uh, when you you know served your country and he instantly said his mate old alan scott on and you know he'd, he would be tempted to say dennis but he said take the emotion out of it um and the the you know the friendly loyalty if you like and he said it's got to be kevin ashurst he said he was our leader in some respects he said yeah we had the managers but he was the person that you relied on he was the one that found the method so would you agree with that? Or was there other Abs England international? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Finding uh, that method quicker than anyone else. That's a skill in its own, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, okay, I'm blessed with that to a degree. But Kevin in, I'm not talking world championships now. I'm talking everyday match fishing. Very mm. quick to sort out what they wanted. And... Uh, in my book, Kevin Ashurst is the best British angler that has uh, ever graced the planet, without without a shadow of a doubt. He yeah. used to credit me with his, by saying, what do you think of Enix? Kevin is an angler. Very dangerous when he's on the method. Hmm. Kevin Ashurst was always on the method. <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, and yeah. I, 
I guess with him, I mean, it's, and then Tom said the same about um, even now, and I think you've name-checked English anglers as, over the years anyway, as the best. And Tom says, even now, we've not won the World Championship since 2013, I think. He said, but we've got the best anglers, we've got the best tactics, we work it out quicker than everybody else. We just need to sort of, you know, get it right. If we get half a draw, we're in with a chance. And I guess there was a bit of a revolution in English fishing, I suppose. And tell me about that 1985 one. You're on Italian soil. We've got, we've obviously got the um, Dave Roper um, won the individual. But back in them days, was it a, a team match one day and an individual match a separate day? It was, was yeah. 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 yeah, you had to finish. There was six on, on a squad. So the manager that year in Italy was... Uh, Dick Clegg. It was Dick Clegg, yeah. Yeah. It was Dick Clegg. And Dave Roper ended up as reserve. The five anglers that represented England mm. all had their opportunity to represent themselves the following day in the final by finishing in the top three in their section. Ah, got it, yeah. Uh, Dick decided to put the reserve, which was Dave, Dave Roper, mm. uh, into the individual. So he did fish the individual and and won it, became world champion. He did. But I remember that match, I remember the team match like it was yesterday. We drew yeah. next to Italy, you know. On I didn't own. know that, no. <laughs> on their own side. <clears throat> yeah, big pressure. Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, we were next to Italy. And I drew next to Milo Colombo. Mm -hmm. um, very, very good angler, Milo. And uh, we drew at the end nearest to the sea, if you like, in the deepest water. And this is the River Arno, isn't it, for the listeners? It, well, it is, yeah. We wet, yeah. And it was very deep. It was about, I remember right, about 16 foot deep where we were. And... Uh, there was very few carp, very few chub. It was just too deep and too slow. Hmm. But what I found down the middle of the river on the slider was these little catfish. Huh? They were like they were like massive gudgeon. They were like three ounce, if you like. Are these these spiny ones that can go yeah. in your fingers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had to learn a method of how to catch them as they swung through the air. You brought them in. And I could catch them so their spines went between my fingers. Mm. And uh, I fished worm on the slider. Fed me and fish worm because I got bites on the worm. And I had a little tiny catfish virtually every cast. Mm. Can't remember exactly, it's only a three hour match, and I think I had something like about seven pounds of these little catfish. And I uh, finished second in my section. You know, it's quite funny. Every time I cast out, this slider would settle 16 foot deep. Yeah. And down the float would go. And I'd pick the rod up. There'd be one of these little catfish on. You could hear the crowd going, meow, meow. <laughs> did you excite? <laughs> a poor old Milo, poor old Milo on the next peg, couldn't catch at all. He did eventually catch a crucius, which is like a crucian carp. Yeah. About a pound and a half. And then he hooked a proper carp that went out of his zone and he tried to hold it and it broke him and his face went ashen. He was as white as a ghost and he had a real grueler. 
and I got second in the section. And you, you beat him, yeah. obviously. Oh, I was second in the section, and he was way, way, way down. Took a lot of points. I took a lot of points off the Italian team. But Milo, he'd never seen this method that I was using. Never seen in his life before. And he came across to me, he said, uh, Ian, he said, uh, I was very impressed with your float, and will you show me? So I ended up showing him how it worked, and I ended up getting an invitation in to Italy some months later to show the Italian team how to fish the loader slider. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> they're absolutely superb hosts, you know, if you ever get an invite to Italy. Uh, they don't have, yeah. Tom said exactly the same. You, yeah. you, can't, you can't put your hand in your pocket, you know. It's an insult so. if you try to pay. Yeah, oh, they're absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, the slider, of course, is, is how you won your individual gold back in 75. And um, yeah. you just, you, you said something then quite interesting, and listeners might not know this, but um, you said about Milo hooked a carp and it went out of his zone. Now, yeah. you was in a very similar situation where the locks had opened um, in Poland on this canal and uh, whether it be by design or by accident, who knows, but after the locks stopped moving, you, you, you struggled fishing, didn't you? You still couldn't catch. So you came closer in, hooked no, the car. No, the it. We started, the canal was perfectly still. Yeah. You allowed a five-minute groundbreaking period. So I put about five tangerine-sized balls of groundbait laced with pinkies and casters and I put yeah. them across the far bank and then baited hook and then waited for the all-in. Mm -hmm. uh, the all-in went and we chucked across on the slider again, yeah, mm -hmm. and started to fish. I got, I got a bite first cast, missed it, maggots were chewed. Uh, we bred gossers. We were over there for a week prior to the match. We actually bred gossers while we were over there. I think Ivan Marks organized it. Anyway, we had these lovely soft maggots. Anyway, I altered the depth by about two inches here, about two inches shallower. Chucked it out again and the float just buried. Picked it up. I had three roach in the next three casts. Yes. And then I cast out and all of a sudden the cow started to rip through. Yeah. That's it right. turned into a it turned into a river because it opened the locks. And they did that on purpose. purpose. We think they did. It sounds um, dodgy. Yeah, it did, and it lasted for about 20 minutes. Whether they were told to stop it or what, I don't know, but nevertheless, it did stop. And like I say, I just had three roaches in three casts. Yeah, I did come closer to try and get more control over the tattle in this while it was running through like a river. Yeah. But anyway, it slowed up and stopped. So it cost us like half an hour of the match, really. Yeah, long time. Went back out there and Paul went on there and picked the rod up. And I thought, oh, the bottom. And it went nod, <laughs> nod. <laughs> bottom started moving. Yeah. It's a bloody fish, yeah. Now, you've got eight metres of land. You could position yourself where you want. And because it's a still venue, mm. as it eventually was, I sat or stood in the middle of that eight meter. The zone, yeah. Yeah. And you've got a, a tape running down to the water, right, four meters away from me to your left, and four meters, another one, four meters to your right. Yeah. And there's a judge, a steward, sat on each one of those tapes. Wow. 
and they're watching if you're a fish, and if it runs out of your zone, yeah, it doesn't count. Which is what happened to me, as you were saying. Yeah, it went out of the zone, and he tried to hold on to it, and it broke it. Yeah. Uh, but this day, my, this fish I've hooked, I could see the headlines in the Angling Times, the Angler's <laughs> Mail. He thinks he would have landed this carp, but England would have won gold. I thought, I must not lose this, whatever happens. Yeah. And I was aware of this rule, and I thought, I know. And I had a brainwave. And what I did, I immersed the whole rod under the water. <laughs> you can see it now. <laughs> Brilliant. No, no bugger could see where the line was. Yeah. I don't think the fish did run out of it territory out of my range, but I wasn't taking any chances. And I played that fish with the rod under the water till I was convinced I'd wound in enough that it could not possibly be out of my soul. And I lifted the rod and there was the float and there was the fish and I netted it. <laughs> my heart was beating, I tell you. And I come okay. to put two of these gozzers on the hook and I don't suffer with nerves. But I tell you what, I burst the next two gozzers trying to put them on the hook. I bet you did. Finally got two two gozzers on the hook, chucked it out, the float settled, slider settled, and it instantly rose half an inch. A lift bite. Yeah. And I picked the rod up, had a four and a half pound bream, I thought. Carp be bad. <laughs> That's bigger right. than the carp, wasn't it? How big was it your was, carp? Yeah, the carp was about three pounds. <laughs> uh, next very next cast of bream, four and a half I ended up in three hours. Well, two and a half hours, really, because we couldn't fish for half an hour while it was running through. Yeah. With 22 pound, eight and a half ounces. Yeah. Which, believe it or not... Record, was, isn't it? it? It was a record for the yeah. event, yeah. I can, yeah. And, you, you know, there was 30,000 spectators that day. The yeah. far bank was just lined with people. And they were great. Because I was catching fish, they were, bravo, bravo, every time I caught a fish, they were waving and shouting. It didn't frighten the fish, it didn't make any difference, because the whole far bank, you know, it was just 30,000 people. It's a lot. Um, I think the, uh, Poland was the last time we won in 2013, I think, and I think they're very hospitable people as well, aren't they, the Polish? So Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they, they love the Brits, yeah. Yeah. No, great yeah. memories, great stuff. Uh, t tell me then about um, what one thing I've always been interested in is bait. I've, I, ever since I was a kid, I got a, um, some additives, Archie Braddock's additives. <laughs> I remember them. Yeah, yeah, I remember I've them. always been obsessed with baits since then. Now, you were of an era, along with Tom and, and Keith and all the, all the lads there, where the continental ground bait, you know, came to, to the UK. And you'd obviously been using it and learning about it in, in on these matches. You fished for England for, you know, 14 years. So... What is it that the Continentals knew so much more about us? Because we, we were just bred and, you know, a little bit of empty seed maybe. These lads come up with all sorts. So over the years, what have you learned about bait and the way that it acts and behaves to attract fish? Well, it's just about copying them. See, the thing is, the difference in styles between the Continentals and ourselves is we rely on maggots and casters and hemp seed, and sweet corn, mm. as, as baits to feed and fish with. But just let's base it on maggots. You know, we use, we can use a gallon of maggots some days. Mm. You know, especially on a cart venue, just because they just eat and eat and eat, and you've got to feed and feed and feed to keep the fish there in your peg. 
Yeah. The Continentals, they only have something like, oh, a quarter of a pint, no, not even that, a small amount of maggots as hook bait only. They don't throw any maggots in. They, because it's because, expensive. No, I don't think they're available ah, in number, yeah. in, in, in volume. Yeah. Well, it was our prime, prime ground bait was the actual maggot or, or the caster. Yeah. They just have a thimbleful for hook baits, and they have had to learn what ground baits work best for what species. Mm. And they quickly learn that bream like a, I've got a sweet tooth. Yeah. Carp have got a sweet tooth. They've also got a fruity tooth as well, you know what I mean? Mm. And they've quickly learned what baits turn, what fish on. And a company like Census, the French ground bait company, they will actually pay anglers for their recipe. You get a successful angler, then Census want to know what ground bait he's been using because they make their own. They yeah. can go to what they call flour mills and all the different ingredients are there in bags. Mm. From polenta and ground biscuit and sweet biscuit and aniseed and hemp, crushed hemp and grilled hemp and so many different bags of different, different ingredients. And they might use a third of this and half of this and to make a ground bait. And if yeah. they get very successful on the much seed, sensors want to buy that recipe from them. And they do. Yeah. And then they put it on the market. Yeah. So that bloke hasn't got the advantage of having that. <laughs> no, not anyway. He sold it off. Yeah. No, because he sold it off. He's 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 been paid for it, and everybody else gets the benefit. And it's quite easy to pick up what ground baits and why are good for certain situations. I was one of the first to quickly learn about ground baits, and I yeah. understood ground baits uh, before a lot of other people did. I remember you used to throw a ball at people on the road show and catch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. I used to play a trick with them. I used to have an aquarium on the stage, right on the table with me. I used to put a ball of ground bait to show people how it broke up. Yeah. I used to say, this ground bait is so good, I wouldn't be surprised to see a shoulder breathe end up in this uh, <laughs> before, before we finish. And I used to have three goldfish in a bag under the counter. <laughs> and they used to say, is that the right time and point to the back of the hall? And every head used to turn to look at this clock. And they used to go, plop, 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 me three. And they used to say, there you are. What did I tell you? <laughs> they come to the ground, mate. Brilliant. Well, let's come up to more modern times then. We've touched on a bit of international fishing, a bit of bait, um, techniques, tackle, bits and pieces like that. So, you obviously, whilst you were doing your, you know, fishing all over the place, you, you did the, the piece of work with the Irish um, tourist board as well, isn't it? Then your road shows and all your bits and pieces. When we combine all that together, what, what made you then think, I want to own a fishery? Was that to do with all the, the school of angling that you was doing as well? Or was it just a case of I need somewhere to, to base myself? <clears throat> right, well... <laughs> What happened, I was working for DHL at the time, and the managing director of DHM, um, Chris Aylert, 
he uh, he called me in the office one day uh, to show me this brochure. Mm. And it was a brochure that the kids at school got with regards to picking their school holiday. Right. And there was a company, I think it was called PSG, something like that. And it was about kids' holidays where they could camp on these private sites or they could actually live in accommodation on these private sites. And they got access to canoeing and to abseiling and anything they wanted to do. And they could enroll to do whatever they wanted to do. And yeah. Chris Aylert had quickly noticed that there was nothing for fishing. Mm. Right. So he went to see the managing director of this company. And he said, I employ the world champion fisherman. Uh... And I, he owes me 30 days a year. I could get him to come and teach your kids. Yeah. So anyway, it was set up uh, for this to happen the following summer. Right. We had to get, and when I went down to test this venue to make sure that the actual water where this accommodation was going to be, yeah. to make sure it was suitable for, for the job. And I went down for three days, took a pile of mine down there, and all we caught in three days between us was about eight huge trout. It used to be a trout water. <laughs> right. Um, Doesn't sound suitable for teaching kids. Yeah. All that was left, exactly that. There was just a few leftover trout which had grown into monsters. So I went back with the report that, yeah, everything's fine, apart from the actual venue. Uh, we need um, we need to get some fish in it for it to be mm. any good for what for, for the purpose. Yeah. So he then got in touch with a fish farmer, and uh, Chris Ayler got in touch with his fish farmer, and it was all arranged that he would stock it with skimmers and carp and roach, etc., etc. And it'd be written into the contract that the fish would always remain his, and at any time he wanted to net them out. It was quite a big water as well, but they were always going to be his property. Yeah. Uh, so it was all agreed, so that's okay, great. So anyway, we're all waiting for it to happen when foot and mouth broke out. Ah, yes. And the fish never went in. He wasn't allowed to transport the fish. Um... The fish never went in, so it had to be cancelled. Right. Now, parents of these kids had made holidays to go to Spain and Italy and wherever. And the first thing I know is I get a phone call off one of these very upset mothers. Mm. With me and my husband are going to, to Italy. Is there any chance that you could look after our little Johnny and take him fishing for the week? Mm-hmm. And how much would it cost? You know, we don't matter what it well. How much were you paying? I think it was £137 for the week. Mm. So I said, yeah, okay, we'll look after him. By the next two or three days, I got 12 people. <laughs> 12, 12 <laughs> All the other parents ringing, yeah. Yeah, the word went round and it just grew and grew and grew. And in the end, I had to, I had to employ a man with a bus. Mm. I had to employ three guest house ladies. To look after them, the man with the bus went and picked them up, and we went and fished a different venue every day. Yeah. And I did that for quite a few years, and I thought to myself, 
when it comes time for me to retire out of the trade, I enjoy teaching. Uh, I'd love to be able to get a water and design all with several waters on where I could design the waters to run the school of England mm. and the accommodation all in the one place. And that's how I ended up in Wales. I finally bought this place in Wales, dug the lakes, built the extra accommodation, and we're here all set up to do just that. It's like every angler's dream, isn't it? Yeah, I've had a very lucky life. Tell me about yeah. the um, tell me about the tackle game because you just mentioned you've just name checked DAM. Whatever mm. happened to them? And Silstar, your name was you know adorned on loads of Silstar rods, and they still do bits and pieces. I still use the line Silstar match team, brilliant line. But whatever yeah, happened is, to those yeah. two brands? Ooh, it's a long story. <laughs> we uh, haven't got that long. <laughs> Can I have the short yeah. version. <laughs> Chris Ayler was an absolute whiz kid. You either loved him or totally disliked him. I thought he was great. He taught me an awful lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was super, as far as I was concerned. But he was, he ran DAM UK. Yeah. DAM, the parent company, was a German company. In fact, ah. DAM stands for Deutsche Angle Manufacturer. Got you. Right, and they sold down their line, which they heard they earned high sort of markets on it. Mm -hmm. Well, he found sources of other lines where he could earn. <laughs> ah, I see. Okay, <laughs> and things like that, and he got caught out in the end. Ah, so DM was dissolved. Yes, and Silstar must have got the word on the grapevine. And they headhunted me and said, would I uh, be their boy sort of thing? So I, we agreed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I went from DAM to Silstar. Oh, yeah, you were um, the face. Your, your signature all over them rods, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I made rods with the with them at Silstar that were way beyond their time, before their time, you know, mm. thin slice Slice rods for canal fish, you wake a fish a, a 10 ounce or 12 ounce hook length, you know what I mean? Superb rods, yeah, made some good product. Like I, I said, I've, I've had a wonderful time in the fishy tree. I've had a wonderful, a wonderful life in fishy. Well, I remember as well, um, I'm going back to being at the, right at the start of commercials here as well. I can't remember where you did it. And you used <clears throat> a canal, a Silstar canal rod, I think it was nine, something like 9 or 10 foot. And you used it on a commercial to demonstrate that going forward, in these, if these venues are going to continue to grow, these are the types of rods you're going to have to use because you need something that's going to bend through from the butt. That's exactly the rod I'm talking about. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday when I was a kid. This was when the likes of Fishermania was kicking off. Early 90s. It's got to yeah, be yeah, sort of early yeah. 90s. That's, that's the exact rod. It was called the SF yeah. Canal Rod. I remember and it like when it was I yesterday. first went to carp fishing, I fished a venue uh, in Northamptonshire. This was my first attempt at match style carp fishing. In fact, it was the beginning of match style carp It was called Biggin Lake. It was in the middle of um, the golf course. I went there, and this lake is quite a long lake. It's got a reed bed 
lily pipe, that's right, right down the middle. So everybody's got like a canal width of water to fish. Mm. And I sat on the box, doing it up for the first time I'd ever been there, and all I could hear was carp sucking in the lilies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which immediately you drawn out there. So on goes a little waggler. That rod, that canal rod, I hadn't got a clue what I was doing, but that's the rod I put up. A little waggler just big enough to to reach the edge of the lilies. Mm. And this rod was absolutely brilliant because I could up these carp. They were only like three, four pound fish. Yeah. But I could hook them. They would try to bury themselves in the lilies. This rod would arc round, bend round. The butt would be creaking. Yeah. And the carp used to turn over on the bellies and come back. Yeah. And I thought, this is absolutely brilliant. And this little rod, which was designed for fishing eight and ten ounce line on the canals. Yeah. With a two and a half and three pound hook length, I could turn these three and four pound carp with ease. And um, like I said, that rod was far, far, far before his time, because it was, you know. I can't remember what, what, where that memory just come from. I have no idea. It's just like a flashback. I just, I remember it. I don't know whether it was a video. I don't know whether it was something you might have even shown on that road show, thinking about it. But it was definitely yeah. a case of, um, you know, when those conversations were go were happening, those sort of early nineties, when you know the likes of Roy opened up Mallory Park. Um, yes, you know, Gold Valley, and you know, these yeah, places yeah. would be coming the start of commercials. You were on it like a shot. I, th I think it was something like, I think you was talking about, um, you know, we were using a lot of maggots. Um, pellets yeah. weren't around yeah. then. It was, you know, four or five pints yeah. of maggots. And, you know, a pint an hour, that sort of ratio. <laughs> Absolutely spot on. That was it. So, again, another example of being ahead of the time with these, these tackling techniques, I guess. What I remember that day is, like I said, it's the first time at Carpish. Yeah. And it warranted a pouch of maggots every cast. Mm. And you'd cast it, it was only about three foot deep against the lilies. And you'd chuck out there and you'd hook a fish. While she was playing that fish, the rest of the maggots had been eaten. Yeah. And there was nothing on the deck. The next thing you'd see lips appear on the surface. This is while she's playing a fish. You could see lips appear where you just hook that fish from. And they were looking for if there was anything floating. Yeah. In other words, they were quick to come up from the bottom, up to the top to look for food. Mm. And I clocked that, and I knew I needed to get another pouch full of maggots in as quick as I could. So as soon as I landed the fish, pouch full of maggots went in, down the fish went, baited up, double maggot, chucked it out on the waggler, bang, into another fish. Whilst I played it, They'd eaten all that pouch full of maggots, and up to the top they'd come again. And I thought, flinky heck, must be that many fish out there. And I thought, I wonder if I have to really go that far. I wonder if I can catch, because it was very muddy, the water, you know, very coloured. Yeah. I thought, I wonder if I can catch them just off my rod end here. It'd be so much quicker if I could. So I started to feed maggots just by hand, just throwing them in. And after I'd fed it for about 20 minutes, Still fishing out to the lilies, I thought, I'll try it here now. So I've just landed this fish from the lilies. I put a, a treble ace shot on the hook and dropped it in just to plumb the depth. Mm. And the float buried it. was about two foot deeper closer in than what it was out by the lilies. About five foot deep. So I've gone five foot deep. 
and handful of maggots over the top. Bang! Got a fish. No chance of it reaching the lilies. Every fish I hooked, I landed. Yeah. But the same thing again. Whilst I'm playing a fish, they've eaten all the maggots. And they were coming up to see if there's anything floating. If there was, they were eating that. The next yeah. time I went, I had a plan. And I took a gallon of maggots, I used to say. <laughs> yeah. Six pints of white maggots. I found out that they like red best. But I used to take six pints of white maggots and just two pints of red. Mm. But I used to fish red, white, red on the hook. And my rig was this waggler for chucking out to the lilies, but then I'd feed short and fish the pole. And the float that I chose to fish on the pole was a dither. Yeah. And the reason I fished the dither, I could fish it at full depth, and if the fish started to come up in the water like they did, I could shallow off to a foot deep and catch them like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I started to fish the second match now. And I'm catching on the waggle to start with, and I'm feeding the short line as well. And all of a sudden, I've seen these fish swirling on the short line. So I drop the waggler rod, pick the pole up with the dibber on, set up full depth, and I've gone in. And what my feeding technique used to be, People have watched this and still didn't understand it. But what my feeding technique used to be was a handful, and I mean a handful of maggots to start yeah. with. Right? In other words, come on, Carl, this is my peg. Come and find me. So I used to treat him to a good handful of maggots. And I'd cast in and I'd throw six or ten maggots in. And when I thought they'd reach the bottom, remember it's five foot deep. Yeah. I would throw six or ten maggots in again. And when I thought they'd reach the bottom, six or ten maggots again. Mm -hmm. The float would go under and have a fish. Once I hooked a fish, a reward, a handful of maggots went in while I was playing the fish. Yeah. In other words, don't leave me. Here's some more, lots more bait for you. Come back for it. <laughs> like dog training. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'd land that fish, I'd go in again and feed six to ten maggots. Mm -hmm. Six to ten maggots. And sometimes I'd see vortexes arrive as then fish came up in the water. Yeah. And I'd just shallow that float off to a foot deep. And I'd catch them at any depth from a foot down to the bottom. But the feeding was always the same. Mm -hmm. A handful of maggots to steady them up. And a trickle, a non-stop trickle throughout. Um, out of 27 matches, I won 24. Wow. Oh, yeah, there you go. On that, on that like method. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, if you ever get a chance to listen to one of these uh, podcasts, episode three with Rob Hughes, he, um, he talks about behavioral conditioning on commercials. Very similar to that. It's, you know, the way that they, you can almost trick them and teach them how to feed. Um, because yeah, they're, yeah, they're that exactly. hungry. So similar sort of principle. That's, that's brilliant. Well, tell me then about um, more modern times now. We'll start sort of um, coming to the end of, of, of this interview, sadly. I could talk to you all day. It's brilliant. Um, but Holgan Farm, um, obviously, as you've already said, you, you designed it yourself. What was the thinking behind it? And do you still do your, your teaching there now, or is that yeah, like I do. two others? I do. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't do that many. 
I enjoy doing it. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do get a kick out of passing on knowledge and seeing people benefit. Yeah. And start catching fish. But just because I've given just a few... Sim- I've done it today. There's a bloke there. He was catching an odd fish. And I said, would you like to catch more than what you're catching? <laughs> he went, uh-huh. I said, do you mind if I just put you right? He went, no. Put me right. So I just altered his title and explained to him in ABC fashion what he was doing. Yeah. I, I'm not kidding you. He was getting a fish every putting. And I'm not talking little fish. I'm talking <laughs> eight, ten pound carp. He was yeah. getting one every single put in. And he, <laughs> I came back about an hour later. I said, he's still coming. He had a smile from here to here, I'll tell you. He was, I bet he did. Oh, Oh, he'll be back. <laughs> I bet he will. Brilliant. Well, do you know what, as well? I watched, um, as a little bit of sort of research in preparation for this chat, I, I did watch one of your old videos the other day, and it was slider fishing, because it's something that um, I used to love fishing as a kid in the northwest. I used to do it a lot. I don't know if you've ever fished there. Satin Park. I used to fish a slider, because it'd, it'd be two foot deep for about 30 metres, and then it'd just drop off. And there's no way of fishing it with a feeder, unless you had your rod in the air, because your line yeah. would go down the slope. So you used to yeah. fish a slider. You used to love it. Anyway, this video of yours, I thought, well, I've got lots of deep waters here. I've been itching to do a bit of slider fishing anyway. I thought, I'll watch your video. And do you know what? Nothing's changed. Everything there. And it's, I think, your strength, I guess, with all these thousands of people that you've teached over the years is you put it all in a very simple layman's terms yeah would you say that's yeah. one of your strengths for these it is yeah for the tips yeah. yeah i suppose not being very quick on the uptake myself in many cases when i try to from my from my teachers me being the pupil mm. uh i decided that when i was a teacher i would put it in a fashion that people could understand a basic ABC approach. Yeah. And that's what I try to do. And people are now saying that that's one of my strengths in putting the message over. I think so. I mean, reading that, watching that video the other day, it was brilliant because I was messing about with, I kept thinking to myself, um, last time I had a go on the slide about November, and I kept messing up, plumbing up. And then I remember this tip of yours, and it reinforced it the other day when I watched it, by using the BB, the telltale, as you plummet, basically. So you know when that white is showing below your, your, your tip, you know that that, that that telltale BB is on the bottom and you want to yeah. raise it up a little bit. And I thought, why am I messing around with plummets at 30 yards, which well, is impossible to cast? No. You can't cast on plummets. Yeah. So, well, you know, uh, if, you your know. Bulk, if your bulk shot was three treble A, mm-hmm. yeah? yeah, remove a treble A and put a swan shot on your hook. Mm-hmm. Your floor's going to go under, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. That's your plummet. Got it. See, there's a tip now, straight away on the on the podcast. <laughs> For those slider <laughs> fishing. Brilliant. Listen, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure, but I always end these podcasts with six questions in 60 seconds. Do you think you're up for it? Do you reckon you'll answer them? Go on, then. Whatever. We'll have a go. We'll, we'll have, have a go. go. Okay, I'll start now. You're round with a rod reel. Two pints of maggots and a packet of hooks. Where do you go and what do you catch? Organ Farm. Catch <laughs> a load of carp. <laughs> of course you do. Every day you do it. Uh, yeah. Favourite place to fish, I think I know the answer to Organ that. Organ Farm. 
in West Wales, South West Wales. Yeah. Slightly more challenging. Your favourite fish species? Cool. Like a lot of people, we all seem to love tench. Yes. Everybody, everybody loves a tench. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one bit of tackle you could not do without. Oh, <laughs> a float. That's <laughs> a good start. <laughs> you enter a pairs match. Who's your partner? Kevin Ashurst. And your best angling achievement? The World Championship. Winning the World Championship. You don't get better than that, do you, pal? Now, on a final note for the listeners, before I let you go, um, what if you had one tip to pass on to everybody, what would it be? Keep fishing. Keep enjoying You'll do for me. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out and talking to me and to the okay. listeners. Thank you very much. For all your fishing needs, be sure to check out Fishing Evolution. Boasting two floors of branded displays, visit our recently expanded superstore at Hadley Road in Sleaford, where we offer a huge range of tackle from all of the leading course and cart brands, such as Nash, Fox, Corda, Drennan, Preston, Guru, Daiwa and many, many more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram where we share all of the latest news and updates about products available in store. Okay, let's take a look then in the Tackle Shed and because of the timings, we've not got the monthlies to look at. Um, so tackles a little bit sort of few and far between in some respects across the weeklies and, and not much on social media that has caught my eye too much. And I think because now we're in, we, we, we know we're in um, close season river wise, there's not much to review in that respect. Uh, and of course, a lot of the trade shows and, and new tackle has, has now been launched onto the market. But there's always one or two things. And if I kick off with uh, with bait, first of all, so I've got a name check my own, if you like. So with, um, with a Teddy Fisher guys, uh, I mentioned this on, on a previous episode that we launched uh, a new range of bait um, called Excite, and it's based on the finest crushed expander um, that you can get along with Teddy Fisher's own um, natural additives. And there's a range of four there. I just wanted to say, you know, it's been selling really, really well. And for the, the price of sort of £1.95, the thinking behind it, it's a 400 gram bag and it's to complement the existing mixes that we've got. So you could pop in some, you know, um, of the green Excite with the special green mix as an example. And that would give a perfectly balanced sweet fish meal base for any commercial venue as an example. So brilliant, selling really, really well. We had advert in the latest Angling Times as well. Um, so, yeah, well worth a go. Uh, next up on the bait front was by Spotted Fin and um, caught my eye because I think the great thing with a lot of the, the, the bait companies at the minute is it's we've all got very busy lives, you know, and it's a case of trying to make things as simplistic as possible. And with this new Spotted Fin range, they've done that. They've taken all the hard work out of method feeder fishing, essentially. Now, um, they've had the Catalyst uh, method ready pellets out for some time, but they've expanded that range now into the likes of sweet corn, halibut flavors, etc. And they've gone away just from pellets into now a ground bait so they've got a method ready ground bait range as well as um a method ready 
um, bait sulk. So essentially you can create, that's for fishery pellets where they need to add something a little bit different. So yeah, for those guys that are loving their method feeder fishing and you want to just sort of get to the bank, set up a couple of rods really quickly. You know, nowadays we all have our rods set up um, and then just whirl some bait together pretty quickly and get fishing straight away. All these companies are coming out with these sort of solutions now. So, so that's uh, really, really useful. I guess one of the big questions that, always crosses everybody's mind is to go down the route shall i use pellets or shall i use ground bait and i guess the the answer really is do your research of course find out what the locals use how the the fish prefer a method feeder presenting to them uh, for me uh, it's a case of maybe go 50 50 try 50 percent mix of ground bait 50 percent of the pellets see it from there what sort of reactions you get and then adjust one way or the other and of course the, the big tip is just don't mix your ground bait or your, your pellets already at the start in one big clump do little batches at a time so you can work out uh, what they want and and again this type of bait that's ready means that you know, you've got your batch ready straight away. So again, it's saving time. So totally makes sense. I'm moving away from bait into tackle itself. So Shakespeare, Shakespeare hold a lot of memories for me. Um, my first fish that I caught was on my brother's kit. He had a few bits and pieces that had acquired over, you know, the time when he was a youth, uh, which were just knocking about in the shed. And it was a Shakespeare rod, black and white one. I always remember it, 10 foot long uh, with a, sort of little reel and it was a case of popping along to the canal and, and a little perch from a from an overflow stream and then that led on to going to different venues but um yeah so shakespeare holds a lot of memories and, and probably for thousands and thousands of other anglers as well i think we all must have owned uh, one of those blue shakespeare boxes at some time i had, I had the beta one um i always remember getting some some coat hooks and putting them on the side of my shakespeare box so i could uh, put my rod in so i had a little rod rest made out of coat hooks yeah happy days and uh shakespeare have been in a i guess a rejuvenation if you like where they're now owned by pure fishing which is an american company and and i guess it's a case of they've been trying to work out where the brand goes um in match fishing circles the super team range back in the day was was very well known shakespeare super team the team themselves have obviously now aligned themselves with uh, Cadence. So they're called Cadence Super Team. And Shakespeare just weren't creating and, and bringing out tackle that suited us match anglers, if you like. Um, so they've gone down a different route. Super Team is now being relaunched and they've started with a range of feeder rods. Um, they've been name checked and tested by Mark Sawyer at the Angling Times. Uh, he did the medium 11 foot one, which come out with uh, some great reviews by himself. And also more recently, I saw a, a nice review of a 10 foot light feeder model. Perfect sort of, you know, 40 yards. Um, I think it's a, got 40 gram um, weight as well, weight in um, estimate. Look, bang on, you know, it's that sort of affordable range from 45 pound up to 70. They've also come up with um, a range of starter kits. And this is a real important one for me, because if there's anything, and I've, I've mentioned this before in, in, in previous episodes, it's anything that gets my goat. It's these supermarket chains or these big stores that put together whoever the buyers are or wherever they buy from. It, it, they should be ashamed of themselves. Some of these starter kits. Um, some of them contain lead shot 
uh, you know, floats that are not fit for purpose, hooks that are nowhere near uh, usable, mainly barbed and just terrible, terrible starter kits. And I think over the years, it's got a little bit better. Maver did a reality um, kit. Preston's have done one in the past as well. And now Shakespeare are relaunching um, new starter kits, all usable, all affordable, between, again, sort of 50, 60 pounds for a full setup. That'll get you a waggler rod, a reel, which is preloaded with usable line, a couple of wagglers, some hooks and island, and of course, instructional DVDs and links, uh, websites, etc. You're going to catch fish because it's decent kit. And, you know, I hope that these sort of kits will get stocked in tackle shops because tackle shops can give the best advice. And if they know, they're confident they can pick up a, a starter kit that they can sell and that kid or that new starter to the sport are going to catch fish, they're going to come back into the tackle shop, buy your bait, buy the bits and pieces, then of course, upgrade as time goes on. So uh, I'm, I'm you know, pretty sure that Shakespeare, it's called the XT range, will be brilliant for new starters and novices. So uh, big up to Shakespeare and I hope that they, uh, they find their, their sort of area of the market once again. Now, finally, let's move on and talk about some polls. So I was debating getting a new poll last year. Uh, I've had my poll nine years this year, 2012, I got it. Um, I got it off a friend, but he'd only ever used it once. So I got a good price, a Daiwa uh, tournament, cracking poll. And when I weigh it up, pro rata, you know, it, the polls cost me like, you know, 150 quid a year. So it's been well worth the money. I've not broke any sections. I've snapped a couple of top kits, but purely my own fault when I've been stuck in a tree and, and pulling too hard. I've never been broke off of a fish, touch wood. Um, and I was debating getting a new one purely on the fact that it's getting on a bit, you know, it's had a bit of ammo. And I was debating the new Daiwa match winner range. Now, I know Daiwa always come up with a slightly lesser range shall we say they've had the c range they've had the xr range the sr range you know slightly sort of lower budget normally what nate labeled one to five as well that's my spare backup pole is a is an old team diode zr i use that for a lot of pleasure fishing that i do um but this match winner range looks to be a little bit different it, it's got the same look and feel as the as the higher end so from you i'd say from the g90 upwards into the tournaments, the whiskers, the airities, airs, etc. All those poles that are made in Scotland and the UK, um, the, the high end, this match winner range looks the part. Now, there's been an, a, a, um, a review by Angling Times this this week, the, the latest um, one. And uh, it, it, again, it comes out with rave reviews. What Mark has done is he's took it to a venue, fished it 14 and a half metres, the MW3 it's called. So that's the middle of the range because from one to five. Retail price of around £1,000. Um, he says shop around. You might find it cheaper. There's good, reasonable range of kits, but eight top kits with it. He's fished at full length for five hours in a, in a blow in a gale, and he's caught well, and he believes that it would be suitable on any venue, from canals through to commercials. Now, that's great. Now, there's a slightly, mis I believe, slightly misleading term at the start of his article where he, he, he almost alludes that this is built in the UK as well. And my understanding is this is this is not. This is a pole that's from the Far East. Um, but I, I might have got it wrong. But when I have a look at the description online, and I have got this um, open just here as well, it even says compatible with all UK-made generic kits and sections down to number four. So that says to me that this is not made in the UK. But I, I, I'm, you know, I... Uh, 
I stand corrected if that's wrong. But either or, it's got a good review. Um, it looks the part. The graphics look great. It's got the MSG, the um, multi-strand graphite um, on there as well. So it's got that look and feel of the of the real high-end range. The MW5, the best one, I'm just having a look now, it's the top end, it's coming out at £1,900. Um, and then goes down to, to the MW1, which is a shorter pole, of course. So, yeah, um, the only thing is, as well, in the description, it says a great choice for the club angler looking for an upgrade to cover a wide range of match venues. So if that's the official description from Daiwa, that they're, they're pigeonholing their market um, towards club anglers. So that's a, an interesting one, too. So, well, if you're in the in the market for a new pole, then, then the match winner range could be one for you. Uh, and then the final thing that... that caught my eye i always try to slip in the odd bargain in the tackle shed and the biggest one i've seen there was lots of small items where a couple of quid saved but it, i didn't think it was worth mentioning on the podcast uh, but this one is uh, fishing republic have got speaking of Daiwa, the Daiwa x power range of poles have all got big discounts on at the minute and the one that stood out the most was the uh, 13 meter that's got an RRP of four, 425 pound and it's down to 350 so 125 pound off of off of that one so that's the uh, the tackle shed uh, when we end our series uh, next in episode six we're going to do something slightly different we're going to speak to mark uh, from fishing evolution which is my local tackle shop now um, fishing evolution has expanded hugely throughout this latest lockdown in fact it's more than doubled in its size so i'm really interested to speak to mark around the uh, the market the fishing tackle market at the moment what's exciting what's not the challenges um the benefits of what's going on in this this fishing boom if you like with all the new rod license sales and just just get a a, a tackle trade insider look if you like so that'll be really interesting too so that's it for this episode that's episode five wrapped up and i'm really looking forward to episode six as i say which will be the final one of series one and that will be with england international um, and gabalino uk manager mr darren cox so thanks for listening and speak to you in episode six.